from the Treehouse Foundation, welcome to Innovate, a podcast that features the voices of the re-envisioning foster care in America champions, folks who are working diligently to change the foster care narrative across the country. And when we talk about how we re-envision foster care, we also have to recognize and to see and to value that young people and young people's families already have skills, already have strengths. There might be, you know, some challenges that may come up and they may need some support navigating through it. But at the heart of who we all are, we all have strengths and we all have skills. And we had that before the foster care system engaged with our lives. When I was really young, like I really didn't want to be with my parents and I didn't understand the systems that they had to operate in. And for me, it really changed a lot because I realized they were human too. And then actually looking at family well-being system now and seeing that like, if we only had mental health services, if we had only had financial literacy and not just the basic budgeting, but like wealth building, financial literacy classes, looking at the entire family unit and having conversations now as an adult seeing how much damage the foster care system really did on on my family. And it's definitely been a lot to try to process and see that mirrored in so many other families across the country, across other countries. In 2010, the Treehouse Foundation launched a movement to re-envision foster care in America. And in addition to hosting eight national conferences, Treehouse also honors foster care alumni who are inspiring a re-envisioning of foster care through awarding them with this honor for their outstanding leadership and innovation. My name is Angela Tucker. I am a transracial adoptee, and I spend a lot of my time mentoring youth adopted from foster care. I am honored to be named a Refka champion, and I am your host. On this episode of Innovate, I will be speaking with Amani Myers and Anjala Quijada Banks. Amani is the author of You Are the Prize, Seeing Yourself Beyond the Imperfections of Your Trauma. She began her life as a ward of the state, and her experiences in foster care have driven her commitment to help others realize their potential and break the cycles of generational poverty. She received her Master's of Public Administration from the prestigious National Urban Fellows Program. She worked on Obama's My Brother's Keeper initiative for young boys and men of color. She has also worked with the U.S. Children's Bureau as a child welfare policy consultant, and she was a domestic policy intern at the White House. Imani currently sits on the advisory board at the National Child Traumatic Stress Network. Anjala is an NAACP Image Award nominee and the author of The Black Foster Youth Handbook, which is a guide for teens and parents dealing with the system. She is also the founder and CEO of Soulful Liberation, which started as a podcast to support young people with trauma to navigate their healing journey during the pandemic, and it has turned into a book publishing company. She is a scholar at Legacy Holistic Health Institute where she's studying medicine coaching and working towards creating revolutionary change in economic injustices and child welfare disparities within low wealth communities of color, both on a micro and a macro level. Congrats on being named a Refka champion and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. 
excited to be here and have this amazing conversation. I think, you know, to dovetail into the work for both of you, which really centers around, you know, maybe policy change for you, Imani, uh, Anhala, your book, really equipping specifically Black foster youth to navigate their journey. How do we equip youth in care to know that, in your words, Amani, that they are the prize? How do we do that? How have you done that in your work, both of you? In understanding uh, how we've come to be in terms of you are the prize, I think that it takes a journey, it takes community, it takes um, opportunity. So for me, it was about really being able to tune into my own experience of what it meant and what it felt like to go through some of the things that I've gone through and to recognize that I wouldn't want any young person to have to experience some of the things that I've gone through. And so really being able to use my voice to really be able to shadow and showcase my experiences has really allowed me to not just see myself as the prize, but to recognize that my voice can actually help fuel change. And so for me, uh, really being able to step into my role in my voice on Capitol Hill, where I had the opportunity to uh, help write a policy report where we talk about how we train our foster parents and caregivers to really take care of our children that are in care so that when they leave foster care, they're not more traumatized. I think that that's really where it begins. It begins around education and knowledge. And so being able to speak to my policy report where I had an opportunity to present the recommendations to members of Congress and the White House Domestic Policy Council and to find that one of the senators ended up taking it up for draft legislation showed me that my experiences in life, it meant something beyond what they were intended to mean. As the oldest of five siblings, and I recently learned about like so many other siblings on my father's side. So when we're when looking at the intersectionality of our own experiences as for me, one, an indigenous person and a person of African descent. Recently, I've just been really been able to accept the Spaniard aspect of who I am um, and not see it as a negative side in the ways that, you know, society kind of puts the white versus black type of thing. So recognizing one, our own experiences, but also how that is connected to our community struggles, how that's connected to the global issues, and also the multiple intersections of systemic racism, white supremacy culture. And unfortunately, what I saw was foster care was you know, a part of that. And so one of the biggest aspects I think that has been extremely enlightening for me in a, a lot of the spaces that I've been a part of is the history, really understanding the history. And it's not um, something that's, oh, that was way back in, you know, that time we need to get over it, like whatever that was 400 years ago. But unfortunately, there's a lot of things that are still there that we haven't addressed, that we haven't, you know, really dealt with and healed from and had conversations around that had sustainable action around it. So for me, in in my own walk of life and experiences, one, it's a journey, 
but also recognizing that we need each other to build upon these different communal practices and solutions. And it's not just foster care. It's not just white supremacy or, you know, it's multiple different things happening at once. And that impact is not just one person or one group of people. It's everybody. Amani, your name is spelled with two N's, but one N is silent. Anhala, your name is spelled the same as mine, but it's pronounced differently. Because I actually feel like there is a lot of crossover between our names, our identity, and being in care or being adopted. I'm really thinking about, I think specifically maybe international adoptees who I know whose names have been changed by their adoptive parents. And many of them are going through like a reclamation process, taking back their first name. And I know some youth who have talked about assimilating and just having people call them by a nickname because American society is like too lazy to pronounce it correctly. And I remember one youth I was talking to specifically was like, I'm bummed because my name is the only thing my birth mother gave me. And so it was like really important to her. So Amani, tell me about where did your name come from? Who decided on the silent N and how does it feel to need to consistently correct people? For the first 10 years of my life, my name was actually spelled I-M-A-N-I. That's what my great aunt had spelled it when I lived with her. And as soon as I moved with my mom, I learned that my name was actually spelled A-M-N-O-N-I. My mom admittedly actually said that she didn't know how to spell it. And so that's why she spelled it that way. And I believe that my great aunt knew that she didn't spell it quote unquote correctly. And so she spelled my name IMA and I. And so for the first 10 years of my life, I went by Amani from Swahili meaning faith. And it's one of the seven principles of Kwanzaa. When I went into move with my mom and it was respelled, I remember feeling actually really upset and angry about that because nobody then knew how to pronounce my name. You go through an identity crisis because even though it has the same meaning. It has a different, entirely different spelling. And I did come across a lot of people um, who did not know how to pronounce my name. And so they butchered it. And over time, I actually hated my name, the way that it was spelled. And more recently, I've become to embrace it because it actually is really unique. And um, I love the way that my mom spelled it, even though she may not have known how to quote unquote correctly spell it. Angela. I imagine that people say your name how they say mine first. Is that right or not? They definitely do. Unless um, they have like a Spanish background or Mexican. For the most part, it will be Angela. I know Deisha Dyer, who was at the White House, the social secretary for Obama, had a huge impact on you. Tell us more about that relationship. You know, I think that one of the things that many of us who've gone through the foster care system can relate to is imposter syndrome. And that is something that I've struggled with heavy. And part of that is because I also grew up with a learning disability um, as a result of 
um, my parents doing drugs while I was in their womb. And so having to deal and navigate with that sort of uh, setback, I had to sort of learn how to maneuver and learn in different ways that were different from others. And so just being at the White House alone, you know, I always questioned whether or not that was a place that I was supposed to be at. And I remember hearing about Deisha Dyer. You know, she was someone who was a college dropout, ended up going to um, a community college and really doing well. And then all of a sudden becoming, you know, the social secretary for the Obama administration. And so I remember her being someone who was also black and dark skinned and recognizing that we don't always see that in leadership and how how powerful that was for me as a dark skinned black woman. One of my mentors, you know, had said to me that she really wanted to make sure that I had a really good experience at the White House and asked if there were, you know, a few people that I wanted to meet with before I left. And Disha was one of the people that I wanted to meet. And so I remember, you know, it was right after I had introduced uh, former First Lady Michelle Obama. You know, a couple of days later, I ended up being able to go into uh, former First Lady's office. Disha Dyer was showing me around. And then she brought me into her office and we just kind of kicked it. And I remember us talking about just sort of our own struggles and our own journeys as black women really trying to make a difference. And she just inspired me so much because even she struggled with imposter syndrome. It just, you know, it helps you to understand that you're not alone. And I think so for many young people who are growing up in foster care, Many of us experience not feeling worthy. Many of us experience, you know, issues of abandonment and rejection and neglect. And so what has helped me has been a community of people surrounding me. And so I don't necessarily think it's about what can a child in foster care do. I think it's really about what can the adults around the young people do to make sure that young people have opportunities to thrive that um, young people have opportunities to succeed and that they have the opportunity to also work on and work within uh, their self-esteem and their confidence to know that they have worked dignity and value no matter what they have gone through. I think in addition to all that you named that folks within the system likely experience neglect, abandonment, um, trust, difficulties, um, Another piece I think is there's something that happens when the state is making the decisions for you and can, I think, ultimately lead to us feeling like we aren't worthy of being at the White House, that there's a kind of a, like an infantilization that happens that makes, I think for many of us, makes it hard to understand that like, no, we actually are in control of our lives and have the authority and the power to make changes, make, make inroads. I, I think about Anhala in your book, you have, I am success questions. That exercise seems so important and powerful in this same vein of helping us realize our own qualities and skills and traits. They were actually initially, foster youth success questions. And I changed it because I don't want to, I didn't want to subconsciously push the narrative that you are a foster youth. 
Um, because we are way more than that. Our experiences in the foster care system are one thing, but we do not need to create an identity around our trauma, any of the traumas. So the I am success questions is really tapping into the humanness of us, not necessarily the foster, <laughs> foster careness. How do we heal from that? How do we become what we want to become, whatever that is, whatever, and however big that is, um, or quote unquote unrealistic that may seem to others. So that was a really huge piece for me to go back through the entire book and make sure it was all I am, I am success questions because whether or not you are doing something as, as an achievement or doing something that is of economic value to the economy or capitalistic value, you are successful. Like you are a success. You don't have to do all these other different things and be all these different things. Just as you are, you are enough. And that's just, that's just something that, um, I've noticed. I continuously go back to, um, in a spiral, um, throughout my life is like, Yes, I am enough. And throughout the years of uh, different things that are happening in the world, it can be challenging sometimes. And, you know, for me, I, I have different mental health stuff sometimes that come up, especially during the holidays. And it's just kind of like, no, I am enough, you know, and youth are enough and we're all enough just as we are, just as we're living. And if we choose to contribute, you know, through our purpose and other things, that's an additional thing. I think you're absolutely right when we talk about uh, success and how we measure success and how we define success. And I think that, you know, oftentimes, you know, a young person waking up just to brush their teeth or just opening their eyes may be their success for what they can do in that day. Many of us who've experienced, you know, childhood trauma, we're still dealing with that in our adult lives. You know, oftentimes we're learning how to navigate that in addition to trying to be contributing members of society. You know, even when we talk about how we re-envision foster care, you know, one of the things that I wanted to mention is that we also have to recognize and to see and to value that young people and young people's families um, already have skills, already have strengths. There might be, you know, some challenges that may come up and they may need some support navigating through it. But at the heart of who we all are, we all have strengths and we all have skills and we had that before the foster care system engaged with our lives. There's a movement away from language calling this the child welfare system instead to a family well-being system. And I, I think you both know probably that it costs more emotionally and financially to remove a kid from their home than trying to keep families together, which I think gets to your point, Amani, about first we have to see that family as having strengths instead of just, you know, addicted to drugs or just whatever they're struggling with. Anjala, I want to pass it over to you on this same wavelength around truly believing that our youth in foster care are coming from beautiful ancestry? When I was really young, like I really didn't want to be with my parents because I felt like 
they had a lot going on. <laughs> they had a lot going on. We were always moving. It was just always like something. And I didn't understand uh, the systems that they had to operate in. And I also didn't understand the effects intergenerationally that they had experienced. And for me, I, for some people that doesn't really change anything, they're like, whatever. <laughs> but for me, it really changed a lot because I realized they were human too. And I think I put them on a huge pedestal of what they were supposed to be and supposed to do. And to realize like they're human and then actually looking at the system and um, seeing the child welfare system, family well-being system now, um, but really seeing that and seeing that like, <sighs> if we only had mental health services, if we had only had financial literacy classes and not just the basic budgeting, but like, wealth building, financial literacy classes, looking at all, the entire family unit and having conversations now as an adult, seeing how much damage, you know, the foster care system really did on, on my family. And um, it's just been, it's definitely been a lot to try to process and see that mirrored in so many other families across the country, across other countries. It's really looking at the strengths we already have and before colonization, what were the strengths that we had and pulling from a lot of that indigenous and ancestral knowledge and wisdom. Definitely just the idea of community. I mean, this idea of like, we need to remove youth and children and, and parents and everybody's well off separately. It's just not true, you know, for a majority of the cases. And even if it's not necessarily the parents at that time that want to be, you know, reconnected with their children, which a lot of the times they do want to be reconnected. And in my case, it, it definitely was that. It's just mental health and poverty, you know, just uh, misconceptions of ideas and thoughts and the ways we've had to cope in my family were very toxic. Along that same line of you know, others, specifically white folks, feeling like they know what's best for black and brown people, black and brown families and communities. I'm wondering, Amani, at, at the policy level, I know you worked with like Senator Chuck Grassley through the Congressional Coalition of Adoption. And... I'm curious, was that sense prevalent there too? Or was there a sense of maybe black and brown families know what's good for them? I think one of the most difficult things that I have often had a hard time understanding is how can someone speak to an experience which one they have yet to experience? I think that you can only in some ways empathize and sympathize, but I think that it takes hearing from the people who are living it to be able to understand it. And so what I would say is that his office definitely did try to understand sort of the experiences um, that young people in foster care experience. And so one of the things that, you know, I had really, you know, highlighted was the fact that young people who age out of care at a young age and don't necessarily know what to do. 
And I remember sharing part of that story with them. And, you know, he immediately took that up and wanted to highlight that on the U.S. Senate floor. And from there, you know, we had a conversation. I told him that I think it was something that was definitely needed to be spotlighted because, you know, young people um, who go through these experiences and, and have these daily occurrences have to live through this while other people get to go home and live their lives. And I think that what often happens is, is that, especially when we're working across party lines, is that money gets in the way. Egos get in the way. You know, personalities get in the way. And we tend to lose sight of the families that are involved. And so what black and brown families are saying is that we've done this. We know how to do this. We just need support. When you have, when you have devalued a community, when you have disinvested in a community, where do you expect for them to get their resources from? So I think it takes people to take a step back and to really listen to the stories, but not only just listen, but reinvest, you know, and not just reinvest in your pockets, but reinvest in policy changes as if your life depended on it. I've been wrapping up every podcast, asking each guest to finish the sentence. The future of foster care is. The future of foster care is decolonizing. That's what I want to say. And that means getting back to who we are as humans. And as far as with foster care, recognizing that we need each other, we need community. And the more that we stop trying to put all these little huts up in different places and just work on the huts that are already there. I think that's going to be a lot more impactful and again, sustainable long-term. The future of foster care is re-envisioning a better system. We need more allies. We need more uh, people who are going to speak out against some of the injustices that are happening within the child welfare system. I mean, we see it every day when, you know, when people come to meetings and there's often this, this feeling of competition, you know, when, you know, I've been in organizations and I've said, okay, you know, I think that this organization will be really good at collaborating. And it's like, oh no, we can't collaborate with them because of this, this and that. And it's like, well, if we have all centered children, then there should be no question whether or not we're here for the common goal. I just want to thank you both for the conversation. To learn more about the Refka Champions and the Treehouse Foundation's Re-Envisioning Foster Care in America movement, please go to treehousefoundation.net. And I hope you'll join me next week for another episode of the Innovate Podcast. <laughs>